0: Well, do keep your Bibles open there at John 17. We've been working our way through John's gospel. We've been spending a lot of time in this great prayer of Jesus, which is labeled, you'll notice in the English Standard Version, as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, at least from about the 4th century. That's one way it's been described. Uh, One of the reasons for describing it this way is that the format of the prayer follows the format of the prayer of the great high priest of Israel. In that prayer in Leviticus, for example, you hear the priest of Israel praying for himself, praying for his fellow priests, and then praying for all the tribes of Israel. And as you glance down at the structure of this prayer of Jesus, you find in those first five verses he's praying For himself, he's praying about the glory that he shared with the Father before the world was created. He's praying about that life that he enjoyed before there was anything outside of that life. When it was all ad intra, all imminent, all God in himself, God in his own being. And Father, Son, and Spirit shared in that glory as one being. One God. But he's also talking about the glory that was to come to him, particularly as our mediator, that is, as the one who has come into the world to be our savior, the God-man. Something quite remarkable happened at the incarnation in that God took into himself, the Son of God took into himself human nature permanently, And as our great high priest, he permanently ever lives to make intercession for us. Not that he always has to pray for us, but that his very presence in God's immediate presence as the man Christ Jesus is the standing reminder that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He prays for himself and then he prays for his disciples. If you look at verses six through nineteen, the focus of those prayers has been on the immediate disciples. Now we looked at those verses and we saw that there were certain descriptors used of the disciples that can be used of us. We've been chosen by the Father. We have come to believe we have eternal life. All of those elements that that are used there. We are not of the world. We. Belong to the heavenly kingdom and the heavenly king. And so we looked at things that Jesus says to his disciples that have a parallel, at least by extension, to us as believers. But we reminded ourselves last time that primarily Jesus is praying for them. They have a unique role in salvation history. They don't stand alongside us. We are not the same as they are. Those apostles of Jesus Christ were given. Not only to be eyewitnesses and witnesses of what Jesus did and said, but they have a fundamental place to play in the giving to us of that great gift of the Holy Spirit, that great extension of the Holy Spirit's ministry. He who is the Spirit of truth gave us His Word, which is truth. And He gave it to us, as we saw last time, through the prophets and through the apostles. Some of the things Jesus says about them could be said of us as well when he says to the Father, all yours are mine. Now, any of us can say about anything that we have, all mine is yours. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I hope to be, I do by the grace of God. And it's all of God, all of God. But Jesus says to God, all yours is mine. As Martin Luther said, no creature can say that to God. No one who is a mere creature. Only God the Son. And as he's prayed for these apostles, he prays for them quite specifically, that they might be kept. Especially kept, verse 12, in the name you have given me. That name is what had been revealed to them. They had had a special revelation from God that had come straight from the Son of God. They'd been introduced to who God is, God in himself. They'd been introduced to God the Triune, God the Trinity. They'd listened to Jesus use language about himself that the God of Israel used about himself. I, I am. Before Abraham was, I, I am. I am, I am the Lord, God said to Israel through Isaiah. There's no one like me. There is no one above me. There is no one else. I, I am. And so he had given them a revelation, a revelation of truth. And he praised that They would be kept together, that they would be kept united in that truth, that revelation that had been given to them. That that revelation was a standing statement of the unity of the Father and the Son. During his earthly ministry, verse 12, Jesus kept them in that name that had been given to him. Referring to the power of God who had revealed himself. And he had left them with the gift of his word and of his spirit. Now as we come then to this new section, we're immediately conscious that Jesus is now speaking of others. He is speaking of all the Israel of God. He is praying for you. He's praying for me. I do not ask for these only, that is for the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And if you're a Christian this evening, that describes you. It describes me. How do I believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus through the apostolic word about Jesus. This word has brought me salvation. These are the words of life. Believing these words about Jesus brings me into life. These words of God, these words of Jesus, this message of the apostles is the very spoken word of God. Whenever it's read or preached, the breath of God is breathed out upon people, and the work of God is done in hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. Jesus had patterned the ministry of the apostles on his own ministry and mission in verse 18. The Father had sanctified Jesus... And send Jesus into the world. Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify the apostles. And then he sends them into the world. So that Father and Son are acting together to, send, to sanctify and send the apostles out into the world with this great message. And from verse 20 we read that that message will have an effect. There will be those like us, many of us in this room, and many watching by webcast who will believe in him through their word. That's where we are this evening. And so the burden of this prayer that Jesus offers is a prayer, first of all, for unity. A unity with the apostles. There's the, the, the first subpoint, if you will. This prayer for unity is a prayer that the church Catholic, that is the church everywhere and at all times, the church Catholic, might be marked by unity. What is this unity? Well, our unity, according to Jesus, is with the apostles. Let me first of all show you what how he he unfolds this. Look at verse 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Well, in what way one? Well, that they might share the apostles' faith. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me In other words, Jesus is praying that his church would be not only Catholic everywhere and therefore and orthodox, but that his church would be apostolic. That is, that it would be based and built on the apostolic truth Thy word is truth. The only authentic Jesus is the Jesus we discover in our New Testament and through our New Testament in our Old Testament. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. People sometimes think that's the wrong way around. Well, no, it isn't. As believers, we approach Christ and we approach the Bible in this this order. We come to the apostles who bring us to Jesus, and then through Jesus and the apostles, we go into the Old Testament and find it's all about Jesus, all about him. It's the resurrection of Jesus that makes all of the scriptures, the new and the former scripture, authoritative and absolute truth for the church. And the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be an apostolic church. He's been emphasizing that uh, this, this gospel that he gives is a gospel of divine origin. And that it introduces us into the very nature and heart of God. Now this idea of a common faith was understood from the earliest days. You go to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls on the church in Acts 2. 3,000 men, I think, are converted. Other, others, women and children probably as, as well. The new church is formed. What do they do? Well, if you read the passage, what do they do? They come and from the very earliest days, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. What we're doing this evening, the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. That was a mark of the church from the very beginning. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we're told right at the very beginning that the, the book of Acts is about what Jesus is going to continue to do. There are the things that Jesus did, and there are the things Jesus continued to do. But surely Jesus is in heaven. Yes, he's in heaven, but his apostles are on earth, and wherever they go and whatever they do, Jesus is doing them, and Jesus is going there. They are going in the spirit of Jesus. That's why people took note of the apostles, that they had been with Jesus. That's why the apostles can argue about their own authority in the church, that they do signs and wonders such as Jesus did, and even greater than Jesus did. They were the signs of an apostle. They were the marks of, of their authenticity. You listen to them because they were different. Not everybody was doing what they did. Not everybody could do what they did. The people who were alive and well in Palestine when Jesus was there saw these men do what Jesus did. And they took note of them that those men had been with Jesus. So from the earliest days, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief corner stone. So our unity is with the Apostles. It's a unity in faith or a unity in truth. And secondly, our unity with one, is with one another, and it's a unity of love. A unity of love. Look at verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they be one in us. Our Lord is there speaking, perhaps not so much about his ontological relationship with the Father, that is his eternal being, as his current relationship with the Father, as the God-man, as our mediator. Whether he's talking about his eternal being or as the mediator, he is referring to the depth of the relationship that has existed and and exists at this point between the Father and the Son. And because he is our nature, that relationship is the kind of relationship that we can have. He's talking about as the man Christ Jesus, then you and I can listen into this conversation and at this point we can recognize that because he has my skin on, because he is, he is walking in my skin and, and has my flesh and bone and is my brother, human being, the God-man, that the kind of relationship he had with God in his humanity is open to me and you. And he prays that that is precisely the kind of relationship we can have. There's been a lot of buzzing around the internet about the Trinity recently, and uh, I read one or two bits about it, and uh, maybe contributed one or two things to it, but uh, one, of the, one of the confusions that entered in very early on, it was very apparent, where people were getting mixed up between what God is in himself, what we call his ontology, his being, and what God is in Christ in the economy, that is, in the, in the framework of redemption, the work of Christ here amongst us in, as the mediator. And once you distinguish those two things and you say, here is Jesus speaking here quite deliberately as the mediator. That's very clear from the beginning of the, of the chapter. He is there in his God-man status And as he talks to us, he is not offering us the prospect that we will ever know God as as God the Son knows God in his essential being. We could never do that. You have to be God to know God. But as the mediator in his humanity, he is saying to us that, we, we, were, we will one day get to know God and have a relationship with God once it's fully developed it begins now and then is fully developed in his presence that is the same as Jesus himself experiences as our brother as our brother and that experience takes us to the very heart of God the father and the son mutually indwell each other ultimately in eternity but the son is the mediator enjoys the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit just as we do and because he has the Holy Spirit in his humanity he has the father dwelling in him by the spirit and so you and I can know God's presence right now we can know God's presence here as well as hereafter. In verse 22, he refers to the glory that's coming to him as the mediator. There is a glory that God has created, a splendor that God has created, a majesty that God has created that is appropriate to the successful mediator in the work that he has accomplished. A glory that is requisite And appropriate to him in his mediatorial office. We are now not talking about the glory that is intrinsic to the Godhead. Christ never lost that, never abandoned that, never stopped being God, never for one moment hesitated in sustaining all things by the word of his power. He did not empty himself of that glory, he emptied himself by. Taking something he never had before. He took the form of a servant. He came in likeness as a human. And it was in that location as the second and last Adam, as the true and faithful Israelite, that he was obedient in my place, in your place and that he kept the Father's commands and achieved the glory, the mediatorial glory that God promised to give to him, and which he now, if you listen carefully to these words, delights to share with his people. Right now, in his humanity, he is glorified. And when Jesus comes again, we will be glorified. We will have bodies like unto his glorious body. We will sit in his glory, sharing that mediatorial glory. We do not become God, but we become one with our mediator. And we share his glory on that final, that final day. And so he... He prays that his church would be one, would be one in the terms of the truth, would be one in terms of love, that is, love for God, love for one another. And that distinguishing unity, he says, will have an influence on the world. The world will be convicted by it, by the truth. And there are those in the world that will be attracted by it as they see the demonstration of love among the people of God. And he goes further. He prays that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Only Jesus could say that to us. I want you to underline in your mind those words, even as... Our mediator is speaking now on our behalf to the Father. And he's saying to the Father as our mediator, you have loved them as you loved me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? That God the Father loves you even as he loves his incarnate son. That to me is one of the most mind-blowing realities. We should have known this, of course. Back in chapter 3, we're told God so loved the world and sent his only begotten son to die for it. And here we're being told that God's love for Jesus' followers is of the same character as his love for his only begotten and fleshed Son. That's why, in the end, all of Jesus' people become God's beloved people when God is defending you to Satan he refers to you as his beloved people isn't that amazing and he's not finished yet he prays that his people might be glorified there's something Jesus wants and in verse 24, I think the ESV is not very good here. I know that's just about heresy, but I think this is a very strong word, a very strong word of desire here. I will that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory He will say in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. In his humanity, he submits himself to the Father's will. But as happens throughout Jesus' life, there are times when he's not speaking as the mediator. He's speaking as the eternal son, and he's doing that right here. I will that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. That is our destiny. Jesus is just making it quite clear. That's non-negotiable. He's not praying there. He's just saying straight out to his Father. Out of the unity and identity of their sacred persons. I will that they be with me. Where I am. And see my glory. And, you know, that's where we're headed. That's both what, where we're headed to be, where we're going to be, and what we're going to see. The disciples caught a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus' glory. We are going to be part of that glory. We're going to be part of that transformation. We will be glorified. Those whom he foreknew... He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. We're going to be sharing in that glory. It's not a deification. It's the glory of the mediatorial reign of our God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when the believer enters heaven... They enter glory. And when we look forward to heaven, we speak about glory. And our Christian lives, as they develop and grow, involve us being changed from one degree of glory into another until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. and We enter glory. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, glory for me. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this evening that you would be very present with us and that you would come to us as we gather around your table. And as we break bread together, we pray that you would remind us of that day that's coming when we will break bread with the Son of God himself. As we sit at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of your people that you are drawing to yourself from all over the world and down through the ages, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.